uh, hey everybody, uh, it's uh, Scoots, it's uh, like a t- Tuesday, I guess it's a trending Tuesday, but I was thinking of uh, uh, snow as uh, the holiday season settles in, and I talked about leaves, and I think I've talked about snow in a couple different ways on the podcast, so maybe we'll talk more about it uh but I, I don't know if I've, like, there's a couple, I guess there's a couple of, there's nothing I want to get off my chest about snow. But I was like, okay, if I'm, I'm going to do some meandering rambles, uh, we could talk about snow. We can talk about sledding. Like a little bit of a mem- memory trip. Uh, it, it, actually, yeah, it'll be all probably real of, like, uh, some snow memories as a child, but also some snow specifics. And maybe if you're like a deep, deep listener, you'll get some new perspectives and some things I've talked about before. Uh, so let me take you all the way to central New York to, to, to the 315 uh, area code where I grew up in Syracuse, New York. Uh, 13215 was my zip code. Or they could like uh, they could be my current. No, no, it's not my current zip code. Uh in Syracuse, I think, uh, like, again, I guess with, uh, like, I, I never know, like, it, it has a notoriety for being snowy and wet and cold. And maybe notoriety is a little strong, but that's, like, one of the things, especially in New York State, they say, well, where are you from? Oh, Syracuse. Uh, and they say, this gets a lot of snow there. I mean, maybe someone from Buffalo or Rochester, they might say, because that's the snow belt, uh, and I think I maybe talked about the science and it leaked, you know, as soon as I, like, my brain is like a sieve, sieve like, or I have sieve brain. So I'm pretty sure that the moisture in Syracuse is due to the Great Lakes and the water temperature and the warm and some sort of jet stream action. And Syracuse always seemed to, to uh, uh, have like the most precipitation or the most snow. And I don't know if any of that's true. That's just what people always said when we were growing up. And I did have, especially as a kid, as most people do, like a, a sense of hometown pride. And anytime Syracuse was mentioned in major media, you know, my heart beat a little bit faster. Uh, so, so anytime, you know, they were taught, I said, that's right. I'm so proud of that. My city just happens to be in a place where it gets, uh, the most precipitation, but really, I mean, I guess it, like the downside is, and this is probably why I moved away, is it's really nice to visit. It's probably a lot tougher to live there, and I do find myself uh, a person that need like has a, like a, that needs access to sunlight and the outdoors uh, as part of my like uh, self care process. I guess. Uh, Here's a little unrelated tip. Uh, those of you that, I mean, even if you live in Syracuse, you can use this tip. And it is a sleep tip. Now, it's, I guess it's a little bit tougher in the east, uh, but you actually you have windows. So it would be the same thing. It's like uh, as soon as you wake up, uh, and this is something I, I do on and off, as soon as you wake up, ideally you get out of bed right away. Like, as soon as your alarm goes off, that's one of the sleep t- I didn't know how this became a sleep tip uh, episode, but, uh, like, you get out of bed right away. Uh, and I haven't mastered that part yet, but usually, like, because also, I don't know, I guess I'm split on that. Uh, but if I'm giving tips, like, I'm, I guess I don't want to give the reality. Because usually I like to, if I had a dream, I like to lie there and think about my dream 
or lie there and say, well, I don't really want to get out of bed. But ideally, I get out of bed pretty quick nowadays. I don't use my phone. That's one of my new rules is uh, no, no, don't touch that phone unless you're putting it in your pocket. It also depends on, like, you know, my bladder situation, how quick I get out of there. But then I like to make my bed. And now I don't do, like, I do more of, like, a a basic bed making where I try to put my pillowcases back on from whatever was going on in my dreams. Uh, you know, great, uh, great pillow makeout or whatever I was doing or pillow wrestling or pillow hugging. And then I like, uh, like will rearrange my blankets. Uh, so that it's nice when I go to bed. So look like, I, and I never was like this, uh, until I started making this podcast, I realized it's kind of an important thing. It, it, like they say, it's one of these keystone habits, and I actually believe it. I'm not a big believer in all that stuff, but uh, so I don't really make I mean, I do make my bed. Like, I don't tuck any sheets in. I just, uh, like, uh, I'll pull my comforter off, then I have a blanket, and then I have a sheet. And uh, usually my sheet and my blanket are pretty well aligned, so I'll just have to flick them and then flick out my comforter. So it kind of like is a basic make, and that takes no time at all. And then the next thing you might do after you visit the facilities, uh, and if you have a pet, a dog especially, it makes it a lot easier, is to go, and I lo- I'm lucky enough to live in the Bay Area, so I immediately open my back door. Even Sometimes even Koa lately, she stays, she says, you know, it's too early for me is to go outside, open the door, and I don't know if you're into heavy bre- or heavy breathing. <laughs> I don't know where that came from, but uh, if you're into any breathing or meditation or sitting or journaling, or if you're like a Julia Cameron, like a person, or some, a- you know, AM writing or morning pages, uh, or just sitting and listening, is to get outside, and I know, like, like sometimes I'm up before the sun just because of the, you know, time change hasn't happened. When you hear this, it should have happened. And I'm not a morning person, that's the other thing, but I don't really have a choice because I have too much, you know, I got stuff to get done. Uh, but to get access as the sun rises, I hear that's good for, like, you setting your clock. As soon as you get outside, I spend a few minutes... uh and I just try to listen to the sounds or if there's birds or something to look at or trees or, uh, or yeah, listen to the freeway, listen to the port of Oakland, maybe listen to whatever other sounds I'm hearing, but I get a little sun, even if it's below the horizon, it's coming. Uh, and I think that's a really good way to start your day and also to end your night. Uh, I just do the same thing because my dog's got to go to the bathroom anyway. And I found, like, if I have, like, which I, I suffer from meditation avoidance, uh, if I do that, I say, well, this is kind of like meditating. I'm sitting listening to the noises quietly and trying to not be distracted by my thoughts. Uh, so it's like, a, I guess it's like meditation meditation adjacent. I don't know. Uh, have we reached peak meditation? Like, uh, probably not. uh I was waiting to see if Buddha was going to call, ring, you know, ring up my brain or anything. So if you live in the uh, like uh, the east, it might be tougher, but maybe you could stand by a window, or if you have to let your pet out anyway, then you're going to have to open the door. I don't know. I can't, you know, I can't speak to that. But that's one of the things is like, uh, 
getting access to light, sunlight, or at least uh, filtered sunlight if you're back east when it's cloudy a lot of the times. So that's, I guess that's just a little sleep tip folded in there somehow. Um, okay, so back back to uh, the subject at hand. Uh, snow, let it snow, you know what I'm saying? Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow, John. Um, so snow, here's the things I think about when I think about snow. A lot of it is related to my bus stop as a kid that I would have to walk to or trudge in this situation, like, uh, or going sledding. So let's talk about the bus stop situation. And here's the interesting thing. Well, I don't know why I can't picture Carl and Sheila, my brother and sister, the closest in age to me. We would walk to the bus. Uh, we'd take the bus to grammar school. This was for grammar school. We did the same for middle school and high school. Uh, but, uh, yeah, this is, these are grammar school memories. And, um, so we would walk, uh, to the bus stop. And usually we would be, you know, trying to get to the bus on time. So the, and it was downhill. So we lived on a hill. And it was very steep hill, which actually goes into a whole other set of snow memories, which would be good to ha- talk about. Uh, but so we live on this steep hill, and uh, so we would go down it usually to get to school. Snow, you know, I don't know what we'd do in the rain. I guess we'd still, I guess we had raincoats. Uh, I'll have to ask Carl and Sheila about that. I call, Hey, by the way, Sheila, I called you last night. Oh, but I couldn't figure out the freaking Bluetooth on my phone. It kept saying it was dialing your number. So I did try to call you just to, just so you know. Not that you're listening, because I don't know if you but you might be asleep or you do like, uh, but uh, I know some of your friends listen to the podcast. Yeah, what's up, Vanessa? So anyway, okay, um... Where was I? So, so Carl, Sheila, and I would go to the bus stop, and uh, we would go there, get the bus, go to school. And usually, the only things that were hard in the morning was uh, going downhill. You'd have to worry about slipping if it was really snowy. But Syracuse uses a ton of road salt, and so there's usually a preponderance uh, preponderance of, of uh, this stuff called slush. And this is much different than slushies. Uh, here's the thing. Kids, don't like I always say, don't listen to scoots. Uh, and probably, pay, probably humans, don't listen to scoots. But I like uh, so slushies, and there's ice, there's Italian ice, there's Hawaiian ice, there's shaved ice, uh, there's slurpees, there's ices. This is the slush is much different. And I have tasted slush uh, on many occasions, both uh, intentionally, unintentionally, and at the hands of uh, older kids. Uh, and I know exa- I have the exact taste of slush in my mouth, so I'll describe it to you. It's really not that bad. Now, the idea, uh, it, like, it just tastes like salty snow with, uh, like, a gritty, almost near-metallic uh like it's mostly salty snow, overpowering the road salt, but uh, with a kind of uh, it's not actually it doesn't taste dirty. It tastes gritty and a little bit metallic-y. And you could get like you can even get slush splashed in your face by cars. And like we might this might be the slush cast uh, because slush is really amazing. Yeah, maybe this winter I'm gonna have to. Uh, if, if, if get some, somebody shoot some slush for me, 
Uh, and ideally, if you're listening, one, it's budget's uh, probably 0.0, but uh, like in our segments of just uh, slush views. Uh, but so slush is like is when snow uh, combines with like warmer air and road salt. Uh, that's what I, that's how I define slush. Uh, and it can be slow, it can be sudden, it can be uh, like a slushy. Like you could get a puddle of slush, which is not a liquid and not a solid. It's like a near plasma. It's uh in the middle. It's a matter change. I don't know if Bill Nye thinks that, but it's matter in the middle of a change. Uh, and I think David Bowie saying about it even. Uh, but like uh, like it'd be gray. It's always gray. And I never knew if that was because of the road or the salt. Uh. I mean, I'm not kidding. Like, I think when you see a pile of salt, it's kind of, it does seem like it has a little bit of grit in it anyway. Uh, but like probably the road picks it up, but it's always like a, a stark gray color. And it can be beautiful if, if you're a fan of gray, like I am, especially a person that like tends to view the world through all or nothing lens and say, man, one day I'll see the world is all gray and it kind of Syracuse. I used to call it the gray planet when I was, uh, in my angsty phase from like, uh, whenever, uh, puberty hit till, <laughs> uh, not too long ago. Yeah. But so the slush, uh, so usually slush. Okay. So my relationships with my primary interactions with slush would be, I mean, there could be, I have a lot of them, but my love of slush probably came from after school walking home from the bus, uh, because, uh, like, uh, we would, could walk at our own pace. So Carl, Sheila and I, we would, uh, I don't even know what we'd do. I can, like, I think we just split up and maybe I, I don't know who walked the fastest, probably me. Yeah, but when it was slushy, I would like to dilly dally. I mean, depending on the slush level and how cold it was, uh. Because you could really get some uh, unbelievably high um, uh, snowbanks, uh, and we'd walk up this hill, and you'd see like your neighbor's snowbanks, and I mean, obviously from this podcast, I'd start imagining. You know, I could imagine I was giant. Uh, I could imagine I was a mountain climber. You know, we, you, there could be other kids around, so we might be doing some snow play, you know, snowball play or whatever. Uh, you could do some like light sledding, like slide down a snowbank. Uh, if the snow looked fresh, you know, you could do like some snow diving, some snow, snow bank jumping, like just measuring it, you know, say, wow, this snowbank's taller than I am. Cause what would happen is the roads would get plowed and then people would have their driveways plowed. So the corner of driveways was always the best place for the, like the highest snowbanks. I'm trying to think other, like, so, so that would be one thing that would distract me. I was like, see, I was already distractible on my way home. But then now snowbanks are primarily made up of correct snow. Yeah, but as you get lower on the snowbank, closer to the road, that's where this, like the, the slush appears, uh, well, in a couple of places, like the primary slush occurs with the general interaction between the road salt and the snow in the ice on the road. And I would presume, and again, I'd love Bill Nye, you know, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, uh, no, I'm not kidding. Like this, like you probably already covered all this, uh, 
But like, so as the, the salt, uh, would he, I think, I don't know how, again, a little embarrassing, but, uh, I think the salt would generate heat, uh, from just getting wet, uh, uh somehow by some chemical reaction and that would melt the snow. But I guess because the roads were dirty or the salt was dirty, we don't have an answer for that. Uh, even in my brain, I guess we could presume both, uh. Uh, you know, that that would be responsible for the gray color, but I, I guess it would give some body to the, um, uh, the, the melted snow. Now, sometimes the ice and the temperature in the air and the temperature of the ground would be, uh, aligned to just turn to water. And in that case, the roads would be black, uh, cause we had asphalt roads in Syracuse and, uh, there would be, uh, uh, salt on the road and maybe water, depending, you know, depending. Uh, but if it was a particularly snowy day the night before or it's still snow, well, if it's still snowing, that's a whole different territory. I don't know if we'd go there, but, uh, you would have slush, which would be gray and it could be, uh, like packed gray snow. I guess that would be if it was snowing or if it just snowed. But most of the time, I guess it would be like a slush, just like a slushy, but gray and gross, but not super gross, as I said, because I've tasted it. Uh, but another so good, the better slush zone was where the sides and the edges of the road met the snow banks. And also the spray from the cars, because the wheels of the car would spray slush uh, and jettison in, into the sides of the snow banks. Uh, and that would form some pretty cool-looking stuff. Uh, like, uh, I don't even know how to describe it, but like uh, slush getting sprayed into the snow. I guess that's how you describe it. Uh, but so the slush zone, depending on, again, the temperature and the situation, was good for a couple things. I mean, as I said, pretending to be a giant. Uh, I think I did a lot of giant role play uh as a kid, like, I don't need to as an adult, believe me. Uh, but so, like, uh, but like, uh, like you could be stomping slush because there'd be like great slushbergs. And also, cars could accumulate slush on the undersides of the car. And those would be, slu- those would be really good slushbergs if they broke off. Uh, they would look like a gray iceberg. And depending on how, if they they were pure, like if you found yourself a pure slushberg, they're great for sm- smashing with your feet. And uh, sometimes they'd be hard, and sometimes they'd just be like, uh, almost like they were sculpted, and you couldn't believe, like when you put your foot on it, that it was holding together. Uh, like almost like it was a liquid that it somehow that was somehow holding its shape, like almost like it had, had a like invisible wax coating. And as soon as you touch it, it like, uh, like it lost its form. You'd be like, holy cow, that is cool. And it's just like a really, not a consistency. I mean, no offense to slush and slurpee makers and stuff, uh, but that stuff, it, like slush is better. I mean, maybe because of the salt, uh, like slush really was a, like, uh, not a solid and not a liquid. Like where a Slurpee or something like that, I feel like is like just really small ice crystals. Where slush was nearly a plasma gel like thing. Or just so like so small. I, I don't know. I guess like what am I doing? Like here I am. I'm so, 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 
Spokesperson for Slush, uh, excuse me. And then another great thing that I know I covered before that I love to do with slush was like make dams uh, because we lived on a hill and then the slush would start melting. And I don't know if they like, you know, the, the like there'd be rivers of water on the sides of the road from melting snow, even, you know, if, if it got warm enough, you know, broke the freezing barrier or whatever. Yeah, that the edge of the snowbank was just a great spot to make dams for the water trickling down the hill and, make you know, make channels and then you could make dams. And then, I mean, the cool thing about making dams, like, is the futility of it in some sense, uh, at least for a kid, because it has action. Like, I guess like, I never looked at it from a storytelling perspective, but it really is like... Uh, a great story, I guess, if you're role-playing as a kid, because you really, if you're building a dam made out of snow against water and the temperature's not freezing, uh, you're constantly, you constantly have to work. Uh, uh, there's going to be constant conflict, which makes it fun. And there's always the stakes because the stakes are whatever you're imagining them happens when the water breaks through. Uh, so you really are that you can cast yourself as a hero, which would be an engineer or like some sort of uh, uh, protect, I guess, benevolent giant. Or uh, another fun reversal, role reversal, is uh, uh, to build really good dams and uh, then have the stakes uh, like where the dams seem impenetrable and then be the the, the destroyer of the dams. Uh, either by, you know, uh, throwing snowballs, rocks, or being a giant again. And uh, really nothing at risk because it's just water going back down the hill. Because, I mean, usually, well, my backpack would be at risk because who knows what I would have done with that. Uh, so that's probably, you know, uh, like, why is your homework? Well, it was in a snowbank. Uh, the dam broke uh, and it uh, washed my homework away. Yeah, so that was really a good, like a good interaction with both. The, that was like slush and snow. And then, uh, as we so as we went up the hill from my bus stop, we do. I guess we could could talk about uh, one of my childhood, one of my great a great figure in my childhood, Billy, uh, who was a young man, uh, and he uh, as an adult he moved to the big farm, but. Uh, he lived next door to me. He was probably, um, I guess when I was in grammar school, he was in high school when I was in late grammar school. So when I was in sixth grade, he was probably a freshman or sophomore. So maybe four to six years older than me. And he was a redhead and he was cool. I mean, he was like, uh, he wasn't a bit like, he was like the good kind of bad boy. Like, uh, I guess, uh, I never saw him as a bad boy. Because he didn't even need that. Like, he rode motorcycles, uh, you know, uh, like, built motorcycles, rebuilt motorcycles, had rusty motorcycles in his parents' backyard all the time, and in the winter, rode snowmobiles. And he, my parents were not a big Billy fan, and he also was a redhead, and he had this snowmobile suit that we, as kids, he was just a legendary figure of my childhood, uh, because, uh, as I talked about, there was also the BB kids, which Billy was friends with, and he was more of a neutral figure. 
where the BB kids were more of a myth. Uh, they lived up the street with Billy. They were actually bad, bad boys, uh, even though they were friends with Billy. I don't know what they actually were. Like, I spent so much of my time creating myths uh, and wanting my life to be like a TV show that I think I cast them. But though I, I, we did have interactions with them as kids. Uh, which, so Billy was like, uh, he was more like, uh, like whatever, uh, who was that dude? You know, one of those, mo he was like a mo cool. He was cool. I guess that's as simple as it uh, can be. And so his house was uh, the green, like uh, right before my, my, my got to my house would be his house. And usually he was, I guess he was in school. I don't even know, like, uh, I don't even know where he went to high school or uh, what his situation was. Uh, I mean, I can imagine that he at some point was like, I know, you know, I don't need any high school anymore. I've grown out of it. Yeah, but so, like, if you passed his house and he was home, it was always a fantasy of ours to be able to ride on his snowmobile, uh, which, my, you know, my mom would not allow us to do. And I think I talked about it in the podcast. There was one, all like, real, like I don't know where my parents were, and I know it was nighttime uh, that he let me ride his snowmobile. Now, usually, because he was a redhead and my brother Carl was a redhead, so they were a little bit closer and uh, I think Carl's just a nicer person than me. And so I think Carl probably got a ride on the snowmobile before I did. Plus, Carl like, was a little bit more courageous than me. Uh, but at some point, I remember Billy was like, let's go. And uh, like, uh, it was like a really, it was, the snow was really uh, intense uh, because I remember like we could even go in the road and we were jumping, like he was jumping over snowbanks into the road. Nothing too extreme. Uh, like mostly if you went up a snowbank and went down for a kid, that was amazing. And then there was like uh, some sort of island and he went between two trees, like a traffic island or something. And I don't know where else we went. I mean, I remember uh, that uh, maybe I had like, like, like a, uh, like slipped off the back of it or something. And, uh, and then my mom found out and she was like, that like, I can remember that was my only ride on the snowmobile. Uh, though we sat on the snowmobile all the time because he always like, just like his motorcycles, he had a backyard full of like old snowmobiles that he was working on. So we would sit on them a lot and pretend we were racing, you know, like Carl and I, or maybe Bill, my imaginary friend and I, but so that was another cool thing to, to, to uh, and the cool thing was, uh, we happened to live, uh, down, uh, our street was a big golf course and my parents don't golf. Uh, so we weren't members of this golf course and this was before like golf course developments. Uh, so I, I guess at some point there was probably houses on this golf course, but, uh, it was mostly like you went in down this, uh, court or whatever, and it ended at the golf course and we happened to live, uh, or where, where this street ended was the 18th hole. And it was very, uh, hilly. Like you hit off a tee and then there was a huge drop, uh, hill and then, you know, long fairways or something. I don't know. Was, I don't golf. Like it was par five or something. And like, this was the most amazing place to go sledding. Like uh, one of the luckiest things as a child, uh, was that we lived this close uh, to someplace that had high quality sledding. 
like almost too high quality. Like, uh, and so anytime, like, uh, I don't remember, I think you only go sledding like twice a year. Cause then you get so cold. You're like, okay. Or, you know, especially with me and Carl, you push the envelope too much. And then you say, okay, well now we can't sled anymore. Cause we pushed the envelope. Yeah, but, you know, especially in Syracuse, it was always freezing cold. Like, any time it was good to sled. Uh, and I remember we did have, like, snow clothes. So we'd have snow pants, uh, probably boots and socks. So you're fit, you know, and then gloves and a jacket and a hat. Uh, and probably a scarf was pretty essential. But usually you'd be sweating pretty good. And so trying to think like i lived in the era of plastic sleds uh i think there like we did have uh a metal sled at our house uh, but one it was wicked metal and wood it was wicked heavy and i also think incorrectly oh those are called toboggans uh oh that's probably why like i think that was like actually a good invention was these plastic sleds because um those toboggans like uh, were uh they go really fast and, uh, they weren't as flexible. And if you like, uh, so, so yeah, I think it was best. And I think like the, the, the sleds I spent the most time with were orange plastic sleds from where else, but Kmart's. And I think the orange sled either had uh, blue handles or white handles. And I think we had, a, you know, we had the circular sleds, uh, but I think that was our primary sleds. I think we had two of them. And, all, like, if, if people were really taking sled, like, it was a Saturday or Sunday, like, and people were off, like, around the holidays or something, you know, the sled could get pretty busy. But otherwise, uh, it would be usually me and my siblings uh, and then maybe some of the other kids that lived in the neighborhood or my cousins or something if they had come by. But I guess that would be more in the holidays, too. And so, like, I don't know how familiar people are with golf, but you it's a sport where you hit this ball. I think, I don't know, like, I, like I know people love it, but it just seems to me like some sort of, uh, I guess if you're emotionally, but anyway, you like, uh, there's like three different kinds of tees, uh, which I guess, freaking hello, 2016's calling. Uh, but at least when I was a kid, there was like a pro, there was an amateur, and then I'm just going to say like a, like a starter tee or a new tee, but, uh, they had a more direct, like, uh, patriarchal term for it. And I know from my family that my aunt Helen was the best golfer in our family. Uh, maybe her brother Mike was pretty good too, but, uh, so, oh no, uncle Jerry, he was pretty good. So th- I think those three, like, but aunt Helen, she would always win. Uh, the the golf contest that they played, but so it, this particular thing, like uh, the the pro and the amateur tee were up uh, like on a hill that had like a wall, like a wooden wall where they I think they would put flowers and stuff when they were golfing, and then there was the the, the last set of tees. I think those were red tees, uh, and then there was the hill. And it was a long hill, like, uh, not only was it pretty steep, but not too steep where you're like, uh, like it would really, it was really good exercise. Uh, and, um, like if you really got some speed going, you could go really far. 
And so we would go there. And I guess like uh, this is like this is like uh, I don't know if like, uh, this is like the latest version of extreme sports, uh, or maybe I don't know if anybody that got into extreme sports through sledding, or I guess they have that. Uh, it's a thing like bobsledding that uh, like uh, you can do. Uh, but so you would go sledding there. Now you could the conditions really did di- dictate how fun it was and how like how cold it was outside. And I guess how many kids, like if you had too many kids uh, or too many ages of kids, uh, it might be less fun because, uh, you know, like uh, ideally, like one of my sister's friends would be there so she could hang out with them. Or if it was just me, Carl and Sheila, uh, if we were, we, I think we were like allowed to go sledding by ourselves, uh. I think you'd probably get bored pretty fast because you go up and down and walking up the hill, you'd start to sweat. And so you'd need a nice air temperature where you wouldn't get cold if you were sweating and you just get worn out. And then you'd like, uh, actually, even back then, you could put a rope at the front of even a pla- cheap plastic sled like we had, uh, which would help when you're carrying up the hill. But if you didn't have that, you'd either you'd have to carry the sled under your arms. And it was a really light, uh, basic plastic. And I don't know, like, let's talk about the kinds of sleds. So they had you had a two-person plastic sled that you could probably fit three kids in. And it was just like a one piece of plastic that the same kind of plastic they make uh, kids' swimming pools in that aren't effect, like, uh, effective, I mean, not uh, inflatable. So some sort of uh, plastic that I don't think is around too much anymore and but very durable, but not a shiny plastic and more of a matte plastic. And then it had handles that you would hold on to when you were in the sled uh, that were the hard, uh, shiny plastic. Um, and you would need to hold on to those uh, on this hill. And especially if you made a jump, uh, which is where this is, that's where things would start to go off the uh and this was like another childhood myth, like the older kids would get there and they were the ones that built the jump. And I think at some point we became the ones that would build a jump. Uh, and I was never like much of an engineer. You, you know, I was better at role playing that I was a giant engineer with the, the uh, water and the slush. Yeah, but let's talk sleds before we talk jumps. So that was the one kind of sled. Uh the two to three person, and I think two people is usually best, because uh, I don't know how fun it would be for the third person in the back. In uh, three people, like two people, you could get enough momentum going, uh, but the weight wouldn't slow you down. And you would really need uh, packed snow or uh, like wet snow, but not too wet. If the snow was either too wet or too new. It would slow you down, but it was, so ideally it'd be cold, uh, so it'd be like near icy conditions. But then if it was cold and near icy conditions, going uphill stunk, and it was easier, you know, to sustain an owie, and it would be freezing, uh, so you'd wear, you know, you'd get worn out. Uh, but so that was one kind of sled. Now, another popular type of sled is the circle sled, which is like a dish. Uh, popularized. I think at some point they made them a metal because I think in National Lampoons, Chevy Chase uses like an aluminum one. But by the time I was a kid, those were plastic. Uh, 
I don't think I had any aluminum sleds, so that would be pretty cool. I just wonder what the cold transfer would be and which would go faster, plastic or aluminum. And uh, I don't remember, like, I think the downsides of the, uh, the cool thing about the um, plastics, like two-person sled, is that it's going to go straight almost no matter what. It almost had two runners on the underneath of it, like uh, fins, uh, so it would stay going straight. And you could try to turn it and, like, you could accidentally turn it or, like, you could lean and it would do a slow turn. Uh, but otherwise, it went straight. The problem with the circular uh, dish sleds is it would just seem like you had very little control. And especially if you're jumping, you want to be going straight at the jump because you don't want to go off the side because you could ruin the jump. Uh, but also, like, uh, it wasn't a good idea to, to, to go on it. it. Like, you had to see where you were going so you could prepare for it uh, and then continue your momentum straight ahead. And I think just the spinning around, I, I guess maybe, I don't know if it was a personal choice. I just didn't like those circles, those, those dish sleds. And we'll just get the final toboggan. Like, so there's a, there was like the small toboggan, the fearless flyer, right? Was that what they were called? Or like the RC flyer or whatever, radio flyer. I think those are what they were called. Um, which uh, Rosebud, I think, is the most famous of those. Uh, the Rosebud was like an early edition. And those were sleds, and they were made of metal. And I maybe we had one, because I remember seeing pictures of my dad pretending to pull us in that, or one or two of us. Uh, and that was a very picturesque uh, uh, Saturday evening post-Norman uh, Rockwell-type sled. Uh, I think, I don't know, if, like, like uh, if they have, like, a fourth, like, the Pledge of Allegiance, like, winter edition You'd have a, a, a like a sled. The radio flyer would be in there probably, or maybe the radio flyer was the um, wagon. Maybe they made a sled in a wagon. I mean that would make sense, right? Because uh, they're working with like uh, whatever that was, uh, steel or metal or aluminum. Yeah, so that was one kind of sled. And that was like usually a one or two person sled, and it seemed like it had controls. And you would sit up and then it would have rails, just like a sleigh, like Santa sleigh or sleigh ride sleigh. And conceptually, I think as a kid, like especially with the hill we were at, one, it was too heavy because it was made from like some sort of iron. Maybe not. Yeah. And also the conditions had to be uh, uh, spectacular for that thing to move. Um and so we did not, I don't really remember using that, but then there's like something called a toboggan. Oh yeah, there's two kinds of toboggans too. There's another, there's the rail edition toboggan. Uh, but this is the kind of toboggan that I'm thinking of. I was, I was mixing up my, um, rosebud with a, the, the toboggan. And I don't even know if that's the right thing, but a toboggan is like, a, I'm trying to think if you've never pictured this before. Uh, but it has like a curly cue at the front and it's like, usually it's wood, like some sort of like, uh, this would usually like only like an adult would show up with one of these things. Cause there's no way a kid, you'd need two adults to carry it. Yeah. But it was this long, uh, sled and with a curly, it was made of wood, like some sort of wood that you could bend, um, and, 
uh, let's see, like probably waxed and stuff like that. I don't know. And it was just this long piece of wood with a curl at the front. And it usually even had the one I'm imagining, I think was my uncle Eddie's. It even had like padded seats, uh, and you could usually these were like a four, six, eight person toboggan. I don't know if that's the right word, but that's what I'm calling it. And you would get in it and you have no control. And the joy of it was like being in it with this collective experience with all these people. And again, I think the conditions had to be perfect. No one could get in the way because this was a piece of wood with like uh, the weight of four to eight people. And it kind of had this plow on the front. So you need everybody to be coordinated uh, to get in it or like an adult or a teen at the front uh, uh, to, or to like launch the thing. Uh, but it would be fun and usually like you'd be holding people. So it'd be fun. Like you'd have some closeness like with your siblings. Uh, and maybe like I can imagine for very rare times feeling like a protective aspect of my siblings and my cousins or whatever. And, uh, but that thing, then someone would have to pull it up the hill again. So that was a lot of work. And, uh, it just felt like conceptually, I don't know, like, and then there's inner tubes. I don't think there was a lot of inner tube sledding when I was a kid, um, that I remember, but then, so then there was jumps and, this orange sled was made to jump these orange or, or basic plastic two person sleds. Uh, so usually you'd build a jump. Ideally, you know, kids had all these theories and I used to fantasize that I could make a good uh, jump. Uh, but the best jumps were like even seasoned, like they'd be made and then the weather would hold. So the jump would be out there and it'd be able to freeze and then you'd be able to put more snow and ice on it. So you'd have to really pack the snow and you'd really need a good uh, lead in so that you just didn't crash right through the jump and uh, like ruin it. Uh, So whoever was making these jumps really, I mean, we would try and I think maybe like as we got older, maybe we made one or two. But there was a couple times, yeah, whatever these jumps were made like on this hill, you'd fly. And then sometimes you had to hold on to the sled and you had to sit upright. And of course, people like my brother Carl would like jump out of the sled in midair. And it wasn't like you got so high. Uh, like, uh, I think it was the first chance to, to as kids to get high. I mean, and I'm not kidding, like, uh, with adrenaline and thrills and, uh, like sometimes someone would like get a scrape or, or get a little sad uh, but it was always also like braggadocia, like, oh, did you see what I did? Or, or oh, I dare you to go backwards, uh, or close your eyes or don't hold on or kids trying to go over in their saucers. Uh, so that was always nice. And there was something like, uh, very mechanically soothing, I guess, about sledding and then going over the jumps and then having to walk all the way back up the hill and you'd be hearing the other kids going down and the noises of laughter and yelling. Um, they kind of seemed very nice and soothing and, and, and uh, comforting. And then the sweating was good because you'd be warm. And then at some point your extremities would get cold and then you'd go inside or you'd just be tired. But I think usually boredom or what, like someone crying would be the two signs it was time to go home. Though, I don't know, if you're, you're like, uh, sometimes your fingers, your toes get cold to be like, okay, I just like, I'm done. I want to go home now.
Yeah, but another really enjoyable thing about the snow is, like, being able to lie there, like, in a fresh pile of snow. And some people would make snow angels, and that was always a fun thing to do. But I don't know. I found it, like, uh, like uh, especially when you were really warm because you had a lot of winter clothes on, lying in deep powder and like uh, being immersed so that you almost lose sight of the horizon but you still have sight of the sky and the snow's deep enough that you can't feel quite feel the earth beneath you you can only feel the snow and uh, even like because you're below the horizon your hearing is different and you can hear different snow sounds like crackling and the, the regular sounds change and there's something very visceral about the cold, being so close to something cold that it really is a perfect place to lay and to think about, like, how warm you feel, like, with warmth all around you and that you're cradled in something uh, so safe and warm and nice and... You're looking off in the sky. The stage happens to be the perfect blue. It's just some wispy clouds in the sky. And it's like uh, you're warm. You're super warm, you know, with whatever that wool or is, but you're not hot. And you see, man, this feels good. It feels like I'm like, uh, I don't know, man. I just feel so good right now. So warm. So secure, uh, so nice. Uh, good night.